0: This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Thank you all for being here. I'm I'm unbelievably honored to be the 124th Faculty Research Lecturer. Thank you to my friends and my colleagues. Um, So we have a lot to cover, so let us begin Um, in two years, two and a half years, uh, we will celebrate the 100th anniversary of the constitutional enfranchisement of women, the 19th Amendment. Uh, But the women's movement to win this important, fundamental right for women reached back much further, 75 years uh, behind 1920, constituting one-fifth of our national life I have the challenge, I'm faced with the challenge of how to present this long and complex history to you in something like 50 minutes. So I've decided to uh, organize it, uh, I'll try and cover the whole period, but to drop in at different points of what I'm calling four surprises on the road to women's enfranchisement, women's, uh, women's suffrage. So. Here's the first surprise. We're going to start at start. Uh, The woman's suffrage constitutional amendment that never was. Uh, Here I am in the first decade of this movement immediately after the Civil War. Now, I need to start with the following important point. The, The federal constitution, the US constitution, gives the national government almost no role in controlling voting. It gives the state's total sovereignty over the right to vote Uh, that's so that's why you can change states and uh, how you vote and where you vote and what the requirements are voting will change and the federal government has no uh oversight and from our viewpoint as individuals with the right to vote no way to protect us uh, against actions of the state this is something i'll come back to uh again and this first period I'm calling the period of universal suffrage, and I hope you'll see why. Despite this fact that there are no, uh, no assertions of, of the right of citizens of the United States to vote, on election day, November 5th, 1872, hundreds, perhaps as many as a 1,000 women around the country, from New Jersey to California, went to their local polling places and announced that they were voters by virtue of being citizens of the United States, and they were determined to submit their votes for president. This was a consequential presidential election. One of these women was the most famous suffragist in the United States, Susan B. Anthony. Uh, This this cartoon of her uh, shows her, of course, wrapped in the garments of Uncle Sam, but looking pretty forbidding and uh, a little masculinized. Anthony went to, woke up early, went with her friends and family to the polling place in Rochester, uh, New York, and went up to the hapless man who had been appointed by the Republican Party to watch over the polling place, and explained why she had the right to vote, why she believed she had the right to vote. And she placed her, her argument on the recently passed 14th Amendment, ratified five years before, in order to protect the citizenship of the former slave population. Here was her argument it says, All poor persons born in the United States and subject to the jurisdiction thereof are citizens of the United States. No one can doubt that I am a person. Hence, I am a citizen of the United States. By the way, not until the 14th Amendment was there even any assertion of what constitution, constituted national citizenship uh, in this country. And then it goes on and says, "No state." We, most, many of you are familiar with this. It's one of the most important elements of our Constitution. No state shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge, so it's a limitation on the action of the states, shall abridge the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States or to deny them equal protection of the laws. So then she went on, and this was the crucial point, not mentioned here. She said, who can doubt that the right to vote is foremost among the privileges and immunities of national citizenship? Therefore, I am by virtue of my national citizenship, a voter, and the federal government has an obligation to protect my rights as such. Perhaps the brilliance of her argument convinced the poor guy who was checking off people Um, More likely, um, she was voting for the same candidate that he was, General Grant. So he let her put her ballot in the box, and she went home well satisfied. The next day, uh, U.S. Marshals, federal Marshals, came to her home and arrested her for the federal crime of illegal voting. This was a newly established crime directed not against middle-aged lady reformers, but against recalcitrant Confederate rebels no matter. Anthony was arrested, uh, eventually brought before a federal jury, tried by a federal judge who was actually a U.S. Supreme Court justice who was riding circuit. And so determined was the Grant government to make sure that um, that this, uh, I guess you would call it direct action voting, uh, was stopped in its tracks, that the judge did not even let the, the jury... Um, Uh, uh, deliberate, but he instructed them that they would find her guilty, and so they did. Uh, as uh, As a result of other parts of the way the judge ran the case, she was unable to appeal her case, but the goal of these voting women was to get their understanding of this constitution as it now stood, as a result of the 14th Amendment, vindicated at the highest level, that is, at the Supreme Court. So here's the Supreme Court in 1875, you may notice something about its homogeneity. They heard and they rejected the case that made the argument about why women had the right to vote. The case was called the Minor, which was the name of the woman. Her name was Virginia Minor. She was from Missouri who brought the case versus Happersett, who was the guy who was running that polling place. Minor versus Happersett is only the second case concerned with women's rights ever to be heard by the federal government, I mean by the U.S. Supreme Court. The court ruled... Yes, women were persons, and yes, persons were citizens of the United States. But no, voting was not a right of national citizenship. Voting was a privilege. It was a privilege bestowed by the separate states on those who cons- it considered worthy. It was a privilege. Um, this decision, the Minor versus Happersett decision of 1875, not only affected uh, the beginning of a major change for the suffrage movement, but it, um, it signaled um, uh, changes to come as uh, soon after the Supreme Court began issuing rulings that allowed states to do all kinds of things that got around the 15th Amendment, which prohibited states from disfranchising uh, Men on the basis of race, color, or previous condition of servitude, so that by the time the court was finished, the 15th Amendment was virtually a nullity. But the uh, suffragists were not done with their universal suffrage approach. In 1878, three years later, um, this woman, who is Elizabeth Cady Stanton, Susan B. Anthony's partner in crime, um, came before a Senate committee and uh, announced the suffrage amendment that uh, that the women's suffrage movement intended to have its supporters uh, put forward uh, into Congress. Um, and here we have the women's suffrage amendment that never was. Here is that amendment. It follows the same logic that Susan B. Anthony used, only it... Uh, brings it directly into the Constitution. The right of suffrage in the United States shall be based on citizenship and shall be regulated by Congress and all citizens of the United States, whether native or naturalized, shall enjoy this right equally. And then it's not until the very end of the text that you get any reference to gender. The point here is that this approach fundamentally changed, or would have fundamentally changed uh, the way... uh, Uh, citizens of the United States voted. It disappeared quickly from history. The Republican Party was no longer in a mood to extend democratic rights or even to protect those that it had uh, issued uh, a decade before. And the universal suffrage approach disappeared from history. From this point on, the women's suffrage movement, for the next 40 years, Followed this constitutional approach to woman suffrage. This is the text that ultimately forty years later became the nineteenth amendment. As you can see by my crossovers, it is exactly the language of the fifteenth amendment with race, color, and previous condition of servitude removed and replaced by sex. That's that's the only change in it. I want to compare the woman's suffrage amendment that never was and the woman's suffrage amendment that was. The difference between the two illuminates a lot about what eventually happened when women got the right to vote. The woman suffrage amendment that never was is different from the woman's suffrage amendment that was. It is written in the positive. The woman's suffrage amendment that was um, t- it doesn't change anything fundamental about how how voting is shaped in the United States, it still leaves it in the hands of the states and merely adds one disfranchisement, disfranchisement by sex, which the states are prohibited from. But everything else that the states do with respect to voting is left untouched. Uh, whereas the woman's suffrage amendment that never was, as I indicated before, would have fundamentally recast the general right to vote, both in, in the affirmative, as an assertion, and it's a right of national citizenship uh, with the power of the federal government behind it and with uh, that commitment to equal rights which the US Constitution had already uh, established. Um, it is uh, significant to think, now, you know, this, uh, the woman suffrage amendment that never was, um, was. Uh, in some ways, a passing moment in history, but it does give us a sense of the larger issues at stake when half the population was to be, that had been disfranchised, would be enfranchised. Had this approach been passed, and I understand this is a kind of utopian possibility, nonetheless, it would have brought with it a fundamental revision and democratic expansion in the constitutional right to vote. And we as a nation today would be far less vulnerable to what in the 21st century is called voter suppression, which originates from the fact that the franchise is still under the control of state law and practice and, uh, and is not overseen by any constitutional assurance of equal protection under the law. A second consequence of leaving behind the era of Uh, universal suffrage, as I call this first decade. Um, Woman suffrage had been born out of the movements to emancipate uh, and then enfranchise, emancipate the ex-slaves and enfranchise the men of that community, Uh, but that heritage was now left behind. Um, The country was descending at the end of the 19th century into an era of black disfranchisement, Jim Crow, and and, uh, um, terrible racial violence. For the most part, at this point, the suffrage movement made its peace with this this whites-only view of American democracy. Mainstream women's suffrage organizations no longer welcomed black women. They became effectively all-white. White, white spokeswomen would regularly contend that women were degraded not just because all men had to vote over all women, but because black men had to vote over white women. Black men who uh, middle-class, educated, cultured white women considered their inferiors were their superiors when it came to uh, political rights. And this reputation for racial exclusivity, and at times, outright racism, tainted the suffrage movement for the next four decades. And after, it continues as a damaging part of the movement's legacy. That said, uh, so this is a um, uh, cartoon from the NAACP magazine, The Crisis, 1912, uh, showing a white woman uh, carrying a Votes for Women sign, and uh, putting her hand up against a black woman also carrying a Votes for Women sign and saying uh, the the headline is, Just Like the Men. First of all, there was always a minority of white suffragists who remained believers and champions of racial equality. Uh, White uh, suffragists like Jane Addams or Elizabeth Stanton's daughter were among the earliest members of the NAACP. This image is from the Rochester uh, Zion, uh, 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 African Methodist Episcopal Zion Church, a black church, of course, in Rochester. And these are two uh, stained-glass windows. The right one is honoring Harriet Tubman, but the left one is honors, honoring Susan B. Anthony, and that's her portrait in the middle. Anthony was revered unt- for the rest of her life, till the day of her death, by African-Americans. There were also, and I'll return to this in a moment, there were always African-American women and men, their numbers growing by the turn of the century, who were determined proponents of women's enfranchisement, despite the racial obstacles that they met from many suffragists. So, that's surprise number one. Surprise number two growing the base, the role of the woman's Christian temperance movement, temperance union, 1874 to 1900. So we move now into the next quarter century. Constitutional uh, change was no longer possible. It was now not until the 1910s that any other constitutional amendments were even possible. Um, with the Constitution, as they said, with the door closed to the federal Constitution, the task facing woman suffragists was what we would call to build their base, to make the demand for voting rights meaningful to cons- significant numbers of average American women. Now, in the late 19th century, the face of the average American woman, the female face of America, as illustrated in this, um, in this sentimental magazine um, graphic, was uh, such a woman was a small town, white, church-going wife and mother whose interests did not much pass beyond the door into the larger world. She was pious, she was domestic, and she was maternal. And she, faced, she focused primarily on the welfare of her family and perhaps her immediate community. She owned no property, she paid no taxes, and she cared little for the political issues that rocked presidential elections. Abstract claims of universal justice and equal rights of the kind that suffragists like Susan B. Anthony rested on offered little appeal. How might a woman like this come to understand the importance and power of women having political equality and political rights. And this brings us to this second surprise. Woman suffrage was first connected to the daily lives of large numbers of American women, and I should add here, uh, black women as well as white women, not by radicals like Susan B. Anthony, but by the woman's Christian temperance union. Now the woman's Christian temperance union, to the degree that you've ever heard of it, is ridiculed in public memory as a bunch of axe-wielding prohibitionists who are only intending, they only want to deprive men of their modest little vices and places to get out of the house and away from the little woman. But actually, the WCTU was the largest women's association in the late 19th century, uh, and a particularly well-organized one, I might add. Um, Women were drawn to the temperance movement, initially because of its focus on how men's drinking impoverished families and subjected wives and children to physical abuse issues of men's drinking uh, still remain powerful issues with a feminist edge to them for women. Nonetheless, uh, in 1884, a little bit over a decade after it was formed, um, the WCTU became the first large organization outside of the suffrage societies themselves to announce that it was in favor of and to fight for voting rights for women. 1884, the General Federation of Women's Clubs, the secular equivalent, took another 30 years to get to this point. Now, the woman who was responsible for this achievement of building the WCTU and taking these very conventional, uh, um, conservative, church-going women into the most radical women's movement of the decade was this woman, Frances Willard. This is her on the left. Um, I'll come to the picture on the right in a minute. Um, Willard was the daughter of abolitionists. She was an evangelical Methodist. Born in 1860, you could say she represents the second generation of suffragists. Uh, Anthony was born 40 years earlier. Um, the picture on the right I love. Um, this is a picture of Frances Willard learning how to ride a bicycle. And riding a bicycle was one of the hallmarks of what was called the new woman generation. Because it kind of, first of all you can see that uh, physically it was a kind of challenge to conventional ideas of women's uh, propriety. Uh, but also it meant all kinds of uh, mobility. And uh, Willard, she's probably in her 50s here determined to learn how to ride a bike, and then she wrote a little book about it, which uh, was widely distributed. So here she is. Uh, You can see how tiny she is. You can see she's not all that comfortable. But she finally figured out how to do it. Francis Willard approached women's suffrage fundamentally differently than radicals like Susan B. Anthony had. She didn't say that women needed the votes because of abstract justice or equal rights. She didn't say that women needed to vote because they had the same rights and the same capacities and the same obligations as men, although she did think that they did. But instead, she argued that women deserve the right to vote because their obligations and the sphere in which they lived and worked was so fundamentally different and the concerns, the issues that concerned them were so different from men that men could not be trusted to represent them. Women needed to go into politics to, present, to, to, uh, uh, to protect their own interests. In particular, and this was her crucial argument, women needed the vote to protect their homes. In other words, from that prior picture... That, that picture of women standing inside the door, they needed to step outside the door and go into public to protect their families, their homes, their husbands, and especially their children. Uh, she, Willard captured this argument in a brilliant move that we would call rebranding. Women's suffrage uh, was a term which was considered radical, Uh, associated with masculine women, like that's Susan B. Anthony, and so she took it, and she rebranded it, and she called it the Home Protection Ballot, Uh, and uh, this was a brilliant move that vaulted uh, these conventional late 19th century women over the alleged wall that separated women's private and men's public spheres. In the uh, next 15 years when Willard uh, led the WCTU and brought it into ever new uh, dimensions, uh, she argued for women needing the right to vote on the one hand, as you might expect, to regulate morality. uh, Prohibition laws, although mostly at the state and local level, not at the national level, um, the WCTU was very interested in regulating obscene material uh, and regulating prostitution. In other words, the vote was a tool for enforcing uh, a what we would consider a conventional Christian morality. Um, but, it, th- but Willard, uh, leading the WCTU, also led its members to uh, to see um, the. Um, to engage with a broadly progressive program of the sort that the Populist Party, which she was uh, a leader of, uh, supported. This included labor reform, uh, prison reform, uh, and international peace. After Willard's death in 1898, uh, this balance was lost, and WCTU retreated to become a more conservative, although always an important. Uh, venue for um, rural women, Midwestern women, religious women to come into the suffrage movement. But uh, in the early 20th century, a modernized version of the approach she pioneered, which I would describe as votes as a tool, not just a principle, and votes to allow women to address political issues that were distinct from the issues that men cared about, this approach was embraced by a new generation. So we see here, in a, in a clever, uh, uh, less religious form, another version of the same thing, which is women have to get the right to vote and go into politics in, in, in order to do their business, to clean things up. You've got to call in the cleaning woman. Uh, and um, this approach uh, was... Embraced by new advocates, um, social labor and urban, female social labor and urban reformers, on behalf of a very dramatically changing American womanhood in the early 20th century less rural, now much more urban, less Protestant, more Catholic and Jewish, less native born, more foreign born, and less exclusively democratic, more and more wage earners. Uh, So you can see here, uh, these are the issues which now women need the votes to address. Uh, Food adulteration, these are still domestic issues, um, but also, and and white slavery, in other words, a form of prostitution, but also the dirtiness of politics, bribery and graft, uh, and they have to dig the dirt up. Um, I show you this famous, incredible photo by Jacob Rees uh, of children playing on the streets of New York around a dead horse, um, to um, to illustrate the way that women in these years, the early 20th century, sought the vote to address different sort of issues uh, with which women were concerned: factory working conditions, urban living conditions, uh, tenement uh, safety, and public health and sanitation. We move on to the third surprise. This is perhaps the biggest surprise. At least I think so. We have now arrived at a new century. We are now in what's called in American history the progressive era. Uh, It's a period in which women are actually extremely important. Individual women are extremely important and and, uh, take leadership roles. How is it that women are using political power to affect issues important to them at the local and state level. We're still 20 to 25 years before women get the 19th Amendment. And so here is the answer. Many American women were already seasoned voters by this time. I return to my original point, that uh, despite the 14th and 15th Amendments, the states basically returned sovereign power over the political franchise. So as suffragists waited for the constitutional door to open, to reopen, they went to the states themselves to win franchise rights. If they could convince male voters to amend their state constitutions, removing the word male or adding the word female women would gain, and here's my crucial point, full voting rights up to and including the right to vote for Congress and president. Let me repeat this. So uh, the first uh, example I'm going to tell you about is Colorado in 1893. One after another of these states, they were all Western states, amended their constitutions to give women voting rights. When women, when the Colorado Constitution and the California Constitution were amended, the rights women got were not just to elect uh, members of the state legislature. They were able to elect; they were able to cast their votes for their congresspeople, not for their senators, because nobody was allowed to vote for senators yet, but for their congresspeople and for president of the United States. This is a crucial. Um, fact, um, not particularly appreciated. Now, this is an image of Wyoming women voting in the 1870s. Perhaps you know that uh, Wyoming granted women the right to vote very early in 1869. But Wyoming was a territory. It was not a state. And what this meant was that when Wyoming women, which was really quite a tiny number, at least of white women, um, could not vote Uh, could could not vote in federal elections. There were no state elections. They were able to vote in a a small handful of territorial elections. Here is the first place that... uh, the first major state campaign to convince male voters to amend their constitution, their state constitution, and support full voting rights for women. And the state is Colorado, and the year is 1893 number of women in Colorado who were enfranchised. Um, You know, I said above that Wyoming was only white women, by which I mean not Native American women. There were at least 3,000 black women in Colorado and they were an important part of this campaign and they were part of uh, the victory. Um, uh, This is one of my favorite pictures of the period. These women going in to vote in a frontier kind of uh, polling place and looking quite proud of themselves and uh, quite, quite, uh, quite in charge of their right to vote as they enter the polling place. By the time that the 19th Amendment, so this is 1893, by the time that the 19th Amendment was ratified uh, 27 years later, the women of Colorado had already voted for president six times. Okay, California became the sixth of these what were called suffrage or free states in the year 1911. It was by far the most important state to amend its constitution to give women full voting rights. It was the largest, although not yet the most populous or wealthy state in the nation, but it was large and it was diverse and it had a a modern economy. The California campaign uh, was the first truly modern suffrage campaign, the first 20th century suffrage campaign. Um, it's uh, the, the coalition that uh, won this victory uh, was of a very different sort. It was made up especially of college women, college graduates, who were now uh, the, um, actually the majority of women, of people graduating college, and, and most of those women uh, came from coeducational institutions, land grant institutions like Cal, but also uh, working hand in hand with wage earning women. Uh, so here we see them in a Labor Day parade advocating equal pay for equal work regardless of sex. I called this the, mo- the first modern campaign. Uh, the campaign featured modern technology. Um, the lower corner is uh, you can't quite see, there's, there's an automobile there, and women drove their cars all around the big state of California, going into small towns. Then they would stand up on the car seats, and somebody would stand up with a, a trombone, shout out Jack, and, uh, uh, and she would call everybody uh, to come, and then uh, this woman would start talking about why members, uh, why men, uh, California men should vote for uh, suffrage. On the upper right-hand corner is one of uh, several suffrage movies. Um, the, most of the women in here are actresses. At this point, the movie industry was in New York. But the woman in the middle is actually an important suffragist. And so these were both entertainment and propaganda, and they were shown in what were called Nickelodeons. Uh, finally... Um, the uh, California campaign was characterized by elegant visuals, uh, which began to help the movement shed its um, uh, old-fashioned image and to become fashionable, even glamorous. This one on the left was uh, the winner of a a poster contest uh, for the best poster to advertise votes for women in California. So you can see it's California because it's full of gold, golden, well, you know, no, the golden, we're the golden state, but she's standing, it's a halo, but also she's standing in front of the golden gate where there is not yet a bridge, okay? And this, the, the sun is, um, is going down behind her. As in Colorado, women in California actively use their votes once they won them to address many political issues of concern to them. Here are some, some of them listed on this uh, sign. Uh, Raising the minimum wage for women workers. Raising the age of consent, which in many states was something like 12. Establishing juvenile justice courts. And passing laws to control prostitution. Not by penalizing the women, but by penalizing the men who profited from the trade. Enfranchising women state by state had its limits. It would never enfranchise all American women. Uh, So going from the left to the right. In the Jim Crow South, the Democratic South, the specter, this this racist cartoon captures this. Um, The specter of black women voting was an absolute barrier to change. The Democratic Party in southern states had um, effectively um, uh, disfranchised uh, black male population. They weren't going to open the door to black females who would be that much harder to get rid of. And then in the right, the Republican-controlled industrial northeast uh, was also opposed to women's suffrage uh, because manufacturers there depended on uh, large female and child labor forces and feared that the the, uh, low wages and uh, difficult working conditions in which their working forces uh, were forced to work would uh, uh, be—laws would be passed to control them. Um, The the fear of black women voting, which was rising to hysterical levels in the South in these years, was in many ways a response to the new level of organization and activism among African-American women, a mere generation after emancipation. So here is a large group of women who are from the California State Federation of Colored Women's Clubs. This is 1915. Um, One of the issues that... uh, African-American women were most concerned with and was deeply linked to the desire to have the right to vote was the epidemic of lynching uh, that was peaking in these years. Um, This is a a leaflet, a a, a book about lynching written by Ida Wells, later Ida Wells Barnett, uh, well-known. She's here as a very young woman, but she had a long career. She was an anti-lynching activist, but she was also a pioneering black suffragist. Uh, she founded the first dedicated black suffrage organization in Chicago. Ultimately, you could say that the most important impact of the growing numbers of enfranchised women state by state was to provide a lever to reopen the constitutional door and, and make it possible to begin to re, to re- to repress for a constitutional amendment that would enfranchise women nationally. Uh, By 1912, 10% of the nation's women were already casting their votes for president. By 1916, it was 14%. As you can see, these states are all in the West. Um, I can talk a little bit about what the gray states mean uh, if you want me to later. Uh, At this point, one branch... Of the suffrage movement, which named itself the national women 's party, you can see that on the lower right, um, uh, determined to organize voting women in the states where women could vote to use their franchise strategically on behalf of a federal amendment. Now, this branch, the national women 's party, uh, I need to have a little uh, little point here. Um, most of the people who fought for suffrage were not called suffragettes. They were called suffragists. This group, this group, the National Women's Party, were the only group that called themselves and were called and embraced the title of suffragette. And I can explain that to you. And also the different different, uh, groups of suffrage activists um, were signaled by their different colors. So The National Women's Party colors were yellow, purple, and white. I'm wearing one of their banners here, and they're all wearing their their colors there. Um, To try and get women voters to do something to enfranchise women nationally meant, at this point, we're here in 1916, to mobilize against the re-election of President Wilson. Um, Like our current president, President Wilson, who was a Democrat, His party controlled both houses, and he was in in charge of everything that happened in the federal government. It's also the case, like our current president, uh, that his party was controlled by white supremacists who were dead set against federal interference over voting. Titter? Titter? Okay. Um, Despite uh, the national—and it's interesting, because Wilson has such a reputation as a progressive, but on the issue of race and gender, he was not— Uh, Despite the National Women's Party efforts, he is re-elected, albeit by a very narrow victory, a very narrow margin. Uh, He campaigned, it's 1916, on the grounds he kept us out of war. One month after... And so here are are, uh, suffragists picketing President Wilson. uh, They would have signs that said, uh, he kept us out of suffrage. Um, One month after... um, He was inaugurated, of course. Uh, He took the United States into war. The election campaign, campaign defeated. The National Women's Party continued its pressure on Wilson with daily picketing of the White House. This is the first time that anything like this is done, that a protest movement is taken to the president himself. After the U.S. entered the war, the stakes for all this went way up, President Wilson says he's for democracy around the world, but he's keeping Americans, uh, half of the American people, from, uh, from any kind of democratic rights. And when uh, foreign uh, dignitaries came, they had specific signs addressed to the Russian envoys or whatever. Um, uh, after the U.S. enters the war, these women, who continued to protest day by day, were... Um, assaulted by crowds, they were arrested, they were jailed, and they were force-fed. This is a great story, but it's not a surprise. So I'm not going to talk about it anymore, and you have to read my book when it comes out. In many ways, even more than the picketing in 1917, the truly consequential change in national politics came again by the prospect of women uh, empowered at the ballot box. In November 1917... The men of New York became the first, made New York the first eastern state to amend its constitution to enfranchise women. New York was the most populous, the most powerful state, and had the largest congressional delegation, which was now answerable to the votes of women. And uh, the great majority of its 45 congressmen immediately become congressional supporters of women's suffrage. This turning point is marked by the president's decision after six years of holding, ag- holding out against this to support a constitutional amendment. Okay, we're now in 1918. It's two years before what we know to be the final achievement of the 19th Amendment, but they did not know this. And so here is the, for- the fourth and final su- surprise. The Women's suffrage uh, amendment barely achieves congressional passage and ratification, One could say it could easily have been defeated. By one estimate, 11,000 amendments have been proposed to to the U.S. Congress. Six of these, most famously the Equal Rights Amendment, have gone through Congress but have failed of ratification. There was nothing inevitable about the success of the Women's Suffrage Amendment at this moment. We might have been like that other great beacon of democracy, France, where women were enfranchised not after the First World War, but after the Second. In January 1918, there are three shoes that have to fall here. The first is the House of Representatives. Um, In January 1918, the House of Representatives finally agreed to a full floor debate on the Women's Suffrage Amendment. I, I hope you can see here that the congressperson in the well who is, uh, who is putting forward the resolution is a woman. This is Jeanette Rankin from Montana, who was elected in 1917, another reminder that women were um, voting uh, before 1920. Uh, here are the kind of arguments that were brought forward by the opponents of women's suffrage. The uh, classical one, women's votes will disrupt the family, Uh, The second, in which uh, a congressman says, "If my wife would challenge my wisdom of a political question, I would think the world was coming to an end." Uh, The 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 nation was at war, and war depends on the physical force of, as one intelligent congressman said, the manly man, the male man of the nation. But finally, and this, of course, was the most politically important one, the amendment would create a condition that would absolutely be intolerable for southern states struggling to maintain law and order and white supremacy. These were the days when you could say white white supremacy openly in the United States Congress. Um, The bill passed by not one extra vote, by two-thirds majority. Um, And the assumption was that the Senate would quickly follow. It had always been the stronger house for suffrage. But The vote in the Senate took another 18 months, and at times seemed impossible. Uh, After more than a year of incredible lobbying, the bill was still one vote short. Even after the war ended in November 1918, the armistice did not change the situation. Instead, it was the 1918 midterm elections which shifted control over the Senate from Democrats to Republicans that made the difference at this point, the two parties were fighting against each other to claim credit and blame their opponents. Um, by the time that uh, the Senate vote passes, it is June of 1919. Suffragists were desperate to get um, to get ratification uh, over with in time for the 1920 presidential election because they expected, and they were right, that uh, subsequent uh, political turn of national politics would be very reactionary. Um, now, uh, you know ratification is a, uh, is a difficult, very difficult, the most difficult of the three shoes. Uh, three quarters of the states, the majority of legislators. And there was a powerful and well-positioned and well-funded anti-suffrage movement which put all of its energy into defeating ratification. There are many images I could show of the antis, but I like this one. Vote no, and then here are some household hints just in case. (laughs) One year after the Senate passage, uh, in the June or July of 1920, there were still one state short, 35 states. Democrats controlling the Deep South opposed on white supremacist grounds. Conservative New England Republicans also wouldn't ratify Um, uh, Vermont, uh, I think Maine is late, Connecticut, Rhode Island. The final battle came down to the purple state there, Tennessee. It was the rare southern state uh, which had a Republican as well as a Democratic Party. Uh, In a, a broiling hot August week, a special session was called by the governor and uh, uh, suffragists and anti-suffragists from all over the country descended on the state legislature. Um, Up to the last minute, suffragists did not think they had the votes. Their opponents bribed their legislative supporters or got them drunk, tapped phones, uh, threatened the governor. The legislature who finally broke uh, this paralysis, this tie, was this young man. He was 24 years old. His name was Harry Byrne. He's a Republican in a Democratic-dominated state. His mother sent him a letter urging him to be a good boy and vote for ratification. (laughs) And there's the letter. Uh, The governor, fearful that the opponents of suffrage would uh, figure another dirty trick, signed the bill and sent it off in the middle of the night to Washington. I should tell you here, the last state to ratify the 19th Amendment was Mississippi, and the year was 1984. <laughs> uh, so, here we have on the right an announcement that the Secretary, U.S. Secretary of State Bainbridge Colby, has signed the amendment, signed the bill, signed the amendment making the 19th Amendment constitutional law. Um, he did it at 8 a.m. in the morning on August 26th, uh, fearful. Uh, He did it right away, and it was so early that there were no suffragists there to get their pictures uh, taken with him as he signed. Um, And then here is uh, a picture of suffragists later on um, celebrating. Um, Although there was only, what is it, August to November, um, uh, three months... um, one-third of the women who were eligible to vote were able to register and vote. And here's a picture of both white women and black women eagerly registering and then voting in the 1920 election. There are many more things to say. I hope you ask me some questions. There are many more surprises. We just lived through one. Uh, and in, in response to which I would say, nevertheless, they persisted. So. <laughs> no i'm doing what they do in the philharmonic that was that was wonderful so i our handlers here have told me we have time for three questions lights are supposed to go down so that i can see yeah so there's mics around so there are only three so make them good <laughs> <laughs> oh now i'm scared right you. here you want to just stand and she'll i, I want to to know if you could clarify. So did Native American women get the right to vote when this was passed? You know, this is a very complicated question. (laughs) Um, uh, um, It's even hard to research it and find out. Um, I don't know if there are any Native American historians in the room. Maybe Steve can help me. Oh, Carol. Yeah, um, I don't think until the 40s it's completely resolved under Roosevelt. Is that right? Remember, the 14th Amendment said, and subject to its jurisdiction. And also, the 14th Amendment says Indians not taxed are not included in citizenship, yes. For a variety of reasons, the 14th Amendment did not enfranchise or give citizenship to Native Americans who retained their tribal affiliation. You, so you said Colorado was the first to um, have people voting, say, in the presidential elections. But what happened in Wyoming? Because they ran in 69, and then Wyoming becomes a state in 89. Did, they, did women lose yes. the right in Wyoming when it became yes, a state? Yes, they did. The legislature defended uh, the Wyoming women's right to vote. And I don't use them as the first state because there wasn't a popular campaign, and it wasn't required of the men of Wyoming to uh, change the Constitution. The, the legislature fought against efforts to remove it. You know, it's interesting, the, state of Wa- uh, the territory of Washington also had given women the right to vote. And when it came up for statehood, um, anti-suffrage forces were able to remove suffrage from the new Constitution. And so it was not until, I think, 1910 that Washington became a state that, uh, at 1910, many years later, uh, much after Washington became a state, that women had the right to vote. It, it was obvious in one of your slides that uh, at least one woman ran for successfully for Congress. Could you just say more generally um, whether w- women ran for office and whether they could, obviously they could run for office in states where they had the right to vote. No, they could run for office before they had the right to vote. And, and, uh, and, and so in the states where they didn't have the right to yes. vote, they could run for office even though they couldn't vote? yes. They wouldn't win, but they could. (laughs) Elizabeth Stanton ran for uh, Senate in um, in, 18... God, I can't remember. 1867, something like that. Um, In, I think it's Australia or New Zealand, they make a distinction between what they call active suffrage and passive suffrage. I can't remember which is which, but they actually have separate laws to allow women to hold office and allow women to vote but there was no law prohibiting women from holding office. Now, needless to say, women begin to hold office in considerable, not in considerable, but any numbers after they gain the right to vote. In Colorado, um, the next year after they gain the right to vote, three women are elected to the state legislature. First, thanks for a great and very timely talk, but how do you explain the surge of support for suffrage in the West before the East? Does it have to do with census struggles and attempt to get more congressional representation? Sally, right. I can see you, yes. Um, So the standard explanation is that the West is freer. Um, Or another explanation is that um, uh, it's an attempt to uh, attract women. And a third explanation is that, and this probably has more uh, asp- more truth to it, that the West had its own forms of racism, and it was an attempt to, uh, it was an act against particularly Asians. Okay, um, uh, the answer that I think is best given is that the state is that the parties in these Western states were not entrenched; they were new, they were more flexible. So, at the very same time as suffrage starts to come to the West, we have the populist movement, which is a radical movement, which is also in the West and Midwest. And the populist movement is really the um, engine that brings suffrage into these states. Uh, first the populist movement, and then Western progressivism. So these, these more, more uh, flexible political movements uh, are more likely to be found, whereas in, in places in the East... New York and Massachusetts, for instance, the party, uh, party structures were so entrenched and so impenetrable that women could not... Uh, they were not interested. They had no interest in increasing the electorate and getting voters who they knew they couldn't control. Thank you very much. Thank you, Dr. Dubois. It's been a beautiful presentation. Thank you. <clears throat> it says here on my phone in Wikipedia... Concerning the, It says here on my phone concerning Wikipedia, concerning the preamble to the Constitution, that the courts have found that the founding fathers supported the basic presence, <clears throat> premise of everything that's guaranteed in the preamble to the Constitution. To the preamble to the Constitution? Yeah. The, the courts have supported what the founding fathers were trying to state as our rights. So considering the current climate, Wouldn't you say to be able, or I'm asking you, what's your opinion? Wouldn't you say we need a constitutional amendment to be able to support equal protection clause of voting rights in the states? That would be great, but uh, just as I said about uh, after 1880, the chances of having a progressive constitutional amendment are zilch. We are much more, unfortunately, Uh, uh, likely to have a right-wing-run constitutional convention, which will take everything away for us. So uh, that would be great, but it's not going to happen because the states are so... You know, it might have happened right after the Civil War because the southern states were uh, were, uh, confined and controlled, but the states are not... It's like the Electoral College the powers that are entrenched in that, system, in that structure will never let it be given up, even though it's patently, on the face of it, uh, unjust. Okay, I'm not allowed to take any more questions. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.